calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. You are listening to episode 15 of Ravenwood, a Tanith Fairport adventure written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 36, Homecoming. In the middle of the afternoon, Tanith heard the jingle of harness and the heavy tread of draft horses. She grabbed her wrap and woolen cap and ventured out into the bright, sunny afternoon with staff in hand. As Sadie had predicted, the storm had cleared and the sun blazed in the afternoon sky. The snow seemed to evaporate even as she watched. Frank saw her come out of her house. He nodded with the tip of his hat and a big smile as he passed. The whole village turned out to meet him. The children broke off their snowman building in the back to come running down to see what was on the wagon. When they saw it was just a few rocks, they lost interest and went back to playing. From her vantage, Tanith could see they were already soaked through. She didn't envy whoever would be peeling the cold, clammy clothes from chilly bodies as the sun set. William ran up to the building site to direct Frank and the team in the placement of the lorry wagon, and after a bit of discussion, Jakey and the quarrymen hefted the heavy stones one by one off the bed of the wagon. Nine blocks were roughly cube-shaped, about two feet on a side. Nine more were squared columns of rock, some five feet long and nearly a foot across. They were all lashed to wooden handles that allowed six men to heave together to move them. As it was, six men could barely move the blocks, and they couldn't move the stones far except to pull them down off the wagon and place them near the prepared holes. Tannis stood with the women at the back of Amber's house and watched the proceedings anxiously. The treacherous footing could easily result in a broken limb or worse with the heavy stones. Jakey directed, and the crew soon placed the stones neatly around the site. When the crew pulled the last stone from the lorry wagon, William climbed up beside Frank and the two men rode the wagon toward the barn while Jakey and his crew finished fiddling with the bluestones. Amber blew out a breath as it became clear that the excitement for the day was well over. That could have been ugly. Sadie agreed with a nod, but they really needed to get the weight off the wagon. If they'd left it sitting there, the wheels would have been up to the hubs by morning. I know, Amber sighed. Still makes me nervous, them messing about with stuff that can kill them. Megan laughed. They're just big excited kids. They can't wait to play with the toys. Amber grinned back. Yeah, well, I worry about the little kids, too. What'll they do now? Tanith watched the men looking at the stones and peering down the holes. The sun cast sparkles off the scuffed and muddy snow, but the crew remained at the site. Amber pursed her lips and twitched her nose while she was thinking. I thought they'd wait for at least tomorrow, if not the day after. Sadie made a humph sound. Yeah, probably so. I'll bet those holes are pretty wet in the bottom right now. Amber grinned. Well, I was thinking of them trying to get traction on the wet grass, but you're probably right. Megan shook her head. 
I bet they try to put in one today so that they can use the hunter's moon as the founding date. Amber frowned. Does that matter? She looked at Tanith. Mom? Tanith shrugged her shoulders. Beats me. I've never been around when they started building the building before. She thought about it. Usually you plant on the new moon, but that's two weeks out, and I can't imagine they'll wait that long. The women all stood in the warming rays of the sun, sheltered by the house and listening to the kids shrieking as they played on the other side of the village. The men stood out in the middle of the scuffed-up snow and continued to mill about, looking down in the holes. What are they doing out there? Sadie's exasperation was evident in her voice, but she kept the volume down. You'd think somebody would be looking for a cup of tea or something by now. Amber shook her head. They're waiting for something. Maybe William is coming back. Tana saw movement through the trees and nudged Amber. Yep, and he's got Bester. Looks like you were right, Megan. Looks like. She shook her head. I was really just joking. They shared a quiet laugh before Amber nudged Tanith back. Well, Mom, you better get out there. If they're going to lay a stone, it would be best if you blessed it. Tanith started to object. She really wasn't a holy woman to be blessing stones. She couldn't remember ever praying more in her life than she had since arriving in the village. As she opened her mouth to say something, she saw the raven flap up out of the forest and alight in the top of the tall spruce at the edge of the wood. She thought better of her objections and walked out into the cleared area, leaning heavily on her staff. As William and Bester approached, Jakey and the boys picked up a tripod arrangement from the ground, brushed off the snow, and then stood it up to straddle the northeasternmost hole in the ground. By the time William had Bester in place, Jakey and the crew had positioned the stone over the hole, and it sat there on its handles. The men stepped back and nodded respectfully as Tanith approached. She surveyed the ground as she went, making sure she knew where all the holes were so she didn't fall in one. William smiled and nodded a greeting. She stopped and leaned on her staff, leaning over to look down the hole. It wasn't as deep or as dark as she thought, and she saw a bed of gravel in the bottom of it, wet-looking, but unsullied by snow. She looked around at the men who were looking at her. So? You're going to start laying stones now? Jakey nodded and spoke before William could. Yes, Mom. It'll be good if we can sit the footers in the sand while it's wet. It should help stabilize the stone and keep it from shifting. We don't want to fill in the hole until it's had a bit of a chance to dry, but this should make a good solid footer. Ethan, the building expert, bobbed his head, and William stood at Bester's traces, getting ready to use the muscular animal to do what the men would have trouble doing on their own. She looked at William, who shrugged. Well, that's the plan, Mom. Would you say a blessing, please? I've got a feeling we're going to need all the help we can get. He grinned boyishly. She shrugged and looked around at the serious faces before sighing inwardly. All right, give me a moment. The sun was warm, but it was on the way down, and it had been a cold, cold day. She was tired and still scared by the raven nightmare. As she stepped to where the men had marked out where the chimney would be, she had to stop and gather herself. She leaned heavily on her staff, holding it with both hands and leaning her head against the top. The iron foot was stabbing through the snow and into the yet unfrozen ground below. Mother, give me strength. It was more than a whisper, less than a grumble, and none of the men standing on the other side of the lot seemed to notice. She lifted her eyes to the northern sky and began. We ask the guardian of the north, bones of the earth, to bless and protect the foundation, to make our stones as solid as the stones of the earth, unyielding in adversity and solid as the earth itself. Turning to the east, she spoke again. We ask the guardian of the east, breath of the earth, to bless and protect the walls, to fill them with life and spirit, and to welcome all who enter our doors in goodwill. Turning to the south, she felt a tension growing in her that she couldn't name. We ask the guardian of the south 
Spirit of the earth, to bless our hearth, to keep our fires warm and welcoming and our hearts open to all who sit before them. The tension mounted as she turned to the west. We asked the guardian of the west, blood of the earth, to bless and protect our roof, to shed the rain and snow, and to protect those who seek shelter beneath it. She closed the circle by turning to the north, and she felt the tension tighten more. It was something behind her eyes, and her blood pounded in her ears so loudly she couldn't hear the wind in the trees any more. We children of earth beg your help, your protection, and your blessing. In the name of the All-Mother, and in the name of the All-Father, so mote it be. With that she raised her staff and struck the stone that was resting beside the central hole. The iron shoe rang against the rock, and a bell-like note echoed through the village. She grounded the staff again, and didn't so much lean on it as hung from it to gather herself while the tension inside her leached away into the ground beneath her feet and radiated into the air around her. It took her a few breaths to get her strength back, and when she looked up, William was standing just feet away from her, concerned on his face. Are you all right, Mum? You looked like you were about to fall over there for a while. She nodded without speaking and smiled a bit faintly. I'm fine, William. I'm just a bit tired, and I think I'd like a cup of tea. He smiled gently and offered her his arm. Amber has a pot ready, I'm sure. She took his arm and let him lead her off the building site. As she walked, she noticed that the men were taking down the scaffolding. Did you change your mind? He shook his head. No, Mum. We just needed you to show us where to start. By the time he'd gotten her to the sunny nook behind the house, Amber had brought out a chair for her, and the men had rebuilt the scaffold over the central hole. They muscled the stone she'd hit into position. William walked Bester to the middle of the lot, where they tied heavy woven ropes to the patient beast's yoke. William urged him forward a few feet, and he lifted the stone gently off the ground. He held it while the men quickly removed the lashings and handles. As it spun slowly at the end of the rope, the slanting rays of the sun glinted off a silvery mark that her staff had left on the surface. When the way was clear, William backed Bester slowly and lowered the footer gently down the shaft of the hole. Jakey and Ethan stood at right angles to each other and shifted the stone slightly by leaning on the ropes as it was lowered until it finally rested where they wanted it in the sand at the bottom and the tension went out of the line. Jakey tugged a release cord and the men hauled the heavy lines up from below and got ready to do the next stone. All in all, it had taken less than a quarter hour. Tanith felt somewhat refreshed from the hot mug of tea that Amber pressed onto her not-quite-trembling hand. She glanced at the sun and then at the men getting ready to work on the second stone. Well, she announced it suddenly and loudly, and the women around her jumped at the sound. She handed the mug back to Amber and then levered herself up from the chair. This is all well and good, but I think I'd better go check the fire in my hearth. Megan stepped up and offered an arm. Would you like me to help you, Mum? Tana smiled and waved her off. No, no, my dear, I'm quite refreshed. I'm pretty sure I can walk that far, even in this slush. Megan grinned as Tana stabbed the wet, melting snow with her staff. All right, Mum. She paused and then looked up at her shyly. Thank you, Mum. That took Tanith by surprise. Thank you for what? Megan waved her hand vaguely in the direction of the men working. That. Sadie stepped up and nodded with Amber close behind. Yes, Mum. Thank you. Tanith regarded them, each individually, looking into their fresh young faces, their clear young eyes. She smiled. You're welcome. She headed carefully along the path. The footing was a bit slippery in places, with melting snow turning normally stable ground into the consistency of soft cheese. She made it to her door without mishap and paused to look back at the construction. Megan stood at the corner of the house. She waved. Tanith returned the wave, then opened the door to her hut. 
Before she went in, she looked up at the sky. Thank you, All-Mother. It was less grumble than prayer, and she made her way carefully into the house, ducking under the low lintel to keep from banging her head. She slipped off her wrap and stood her staff beside the door. Her hat went on the peg, and she slipped off the wet, muddy boots before carrying them across the sweet grass mats to the hearth. She looked the boots over carefully and brushed the worst of the dirt off them with her hand, deciding that a more thorough cleaning would need a boot brush and saddle soap. She was pretty sure there was some in the tack room at the barn, and she wondered if she could get Riley to run up and fetch him for her. Shrugging, she set the boots aside, pulled a couple of sticks out of the wood box, and poked up the fire. The sun would be down soon, and she felt the need of a little comfort. The fire was a start, and a nice pot of chamomile and mint would follow. There was plenty of bread and cheese, and a bushel of apples waited in her root cellar. She contemplated that and wondered if Thomas would bring her a rabbit. What would you do with a rabbit? She smiled as she realized she'd probably share it with the raven and then stew the rest. Thinking of the raven reminded her of her morning's activity and the terribly frightening dream. It chilled her, and she stepped closer to the fire. There was something there, something she didn't understand. Perhaps it was something to do with having the raven do her will. Looking for Frank was certainly not something the raven would do on her own, especially not straying into another's territory. The whole episode was troubling, from the first blush of unreasoned worry to the final horror of the nightmare. She breathed deeply of the sweet, smoky air and then blew it out. She was so focused she didn't hear the footsteps approaching her door and was startled when the knock came. Mom, it's Thomas. His voice was muffled by the door. I have some grouse for you. She padded across the mats in her stocking feet and opened the door to a smiling Thomas. Well, hello, Thomas. How's the hunting? He grinned back at her. Well, it is Hunter's Moon, Mum. Hunting is good. He reached into his game bag and pulled out a nice pair of grouse. I thought you might like a change from rabbit, Mum. He held them out to her. Thank you, Thomas. That's very considerate. She took them from him and smiled. I was just wondering what I'd do for dinner tonight. He glanced over his shoulder at the sun. Well, it's coming up on dinner time now, Mum, and these might be better tomorrow, after they've hung for a bit. She weighed them in her hands and nodded. You're right, and I'm not up to plucking them tonight. He shrugged and frowned in concentration. Do you have enough for dinner tonight, Mum? Oh, yes, of course, Thomas. Thank you. Sadie's been stopping by every few days with fresh bread and cheese. With what I've gleaned and gathered and your game, I'm very well fed these days. Well, if there's anything you'd like in particular, Mum, you let me know. He held out his hands. Here, let me hang those for you. She handed them back and he tied them up on the peg. She wondered idly if they'd be safe from the raven there. Thank you again, Thomas. You've all been taking very good care of me. We try, Mum. Now close that door. He made a shutting motion with his hand. You're letting the heat out. She did as he said and heard his boots crunching as he walked away. She padded quickly back to the fire. Standing there with the door open had let the evening air in and the warm air out. The fire burned cheerfully, though, so she filled her kettle and set it to heat. The grouse would be better on the morrow, and she had a feast of bread, cheese, and fruit for the evening. While the water came up to boil, she crossed to the root cellar and pulled up a couple of apples. While she had her head down there, she looked around at the baskets tucked in the cool room under the floor. There were baskets of potatoes, carrots, onions, and turnips. Several pounds of dried beans of different colors and bags rested on her pantry shelves, along with flour, salt, and a bit of sourdough starter. The villagers had outfitted her handsomely to live on her own. She felt a bit guilty that she hadn't done more to teach them the herb lore she was supposed to be teaching them. She sighed. You old fool. Shrugging, she grabbed an onion along with an extra apple for her oatmeal and put it all on the floor. Her stocking feet were getting cold and damp on the dirty floor, so she clambered quickly, if not too nimbly, back up and slammed the hatch. She gathered her produce and took it to the table, outlining in her mind how to proceed, 
concentrating on that and not on the raven, not on the dreams. She pulled her belt knife and dealt with the onion, throwing it and measures of beans and water into one of her small pots, setting it back on the fire to simmer. She dealt just as quickly with one of the apples, coring and peeling it before chopping it up and putting it in another small pot with a measure of cut oats and more water. That left cheese, bread, and apples for dinner. She placed a grate over the fire irons, raked some coals under it, and tossed another stick on the fire. As she moved about the hearth, she felt herself unwinding. The strangeness from the blessing, the visions from the raven, even the prophetic dreams and nightmares faded into the background as she found her center in the tending of the fire and in the preparation of simple foods. She felt the air moving in her lungs and the blood sliding through her body. It felt good. The kettle bubbled over, so she christened the pot and threw in a mix of rose hips, mint, and a touch of chamomile, then poured the hot water into the dried materials, smelling the aroma of summer wafting up from the open pot. She covered it and set it on the warming stone. She was about to address the issue of bread and cheese when she heard more footsteps. You're popular tonight, old woman. It was a good-natured grumble, and she wondered who might be visiting. Crossing to the door, she swung it open as Frank stepped up to knock. He had a large bundle of firewood in his arms and an odd look on his face. Good evening, Mum. His smile erased the odd look. Sorry to bother you, but Sadie said you needed some wood and that I should bring it over. He jerked his head in the direction of Sadie and Thomas's house. Tanith looked and could see a blonde head silhouetted in the open doorway by the rosy glow of a fire. One hand waved to her, and the door closed. That was very considerate of her, and of you for doing it. Tanith felt lightheaded. Why don't you come in and have some dinner? I've just put the kettle on, and I'm making some cheese sandwiches. She held the door open for him, and he ducked low with his armload of wood, and she closed the door firmly behind him. He crossed to the hearth and stood there for a moment, confused, looking at the nearly full wood box. Mom, where would you like me to put this wood? Oh, just stack it behind the box for now. She smiled at him. And Frank? He crossed behind a nearly full box and dropped the armload of split logs on the floor against the side of the chimney before looking up. Yes, Mom. Do you think you could call me Tanith? She smiled at him and gave a little shrug with one shoulder. We're not kids, and I'm not your mum. Her breath caught a bit in her throat. Frank straightened and dusted the wood chips off his hands in the front of his coat while he gazed at her, his mouth just slightly open. He looked a little surprised, a little confused. And then his face relaxed and his whole body followed suit. He smiled and his eyes seemed to shine a bit in the firelight. Yes, I think I can. He paused before saying it. Tanith. She liked the way his tongue flirted over his teeth when he said her name. Thank you. I'm getting a little tired of being mum. She shrugged. Some tea? I was just about to pour. Please, there's a peg by the door. Make yourself comfortable. She watched him slide the heavy outer coat off and hang it on the peg beside hers, but turned to tend the tea kettle before he caught her watching. Thank you, Mother. It was less a grumble than a prayer. Chapter 37. Solstice Solstice morning dawned crisp and clear. Tanith woke just as the sun filled the sky with a clear, glowing light above the trees to the east. Winter solstice marked the shortest day of the year, an inflection point in the middle of winter, when domination of darkness over light would reverse and the sun would begin to reassert her place in the sky. The holiday mood had been building for days as the villagers looked forward to a day of rest and play and the beginning of a new year. She lay there in the pile of covers, 
The cold air in the hut tweaked at her nose, and she giggled a little at herself. Where's that man when you need him? It was a good-natured grumble, and she wasn't sure if she were wishing that he were there to warm her with his body, or if she just wanted him to go stoke the fire before she had to crawl out of the snug nest of covers. She giggled again as she made her decision. Both. Her long-standing habit of sleeping with her clothing in the bedroll to keep it warm for morning paid off as she fished around without getting up and found her trousers and tunic, slipping on the tunic without climbing out of bed, standing quickly to slip on her pants. She already wore her socks, and she added a second pair, rather than her boots, to pad to the hearth and poke up the fire. In a few moments she had the fire stoked, the kettle filled, and herself girded for the morning migration to the privy. Cold nipped at her as she scampered across to the small building, and inside was even chillier. For a few moments she wondered if she'd waited too long, but managed to get in, get the door closed, and her pants down before any serious accidents happened. On the way back she stopped to admire the progress on the inn. As good as his word, William had frame, floor, and roof up. Sturdy posts and beams held up a sharply slanted salt-box roof with a long slope toward the back. She could see the heavy chimney through the skeleton of the building, with open maws where the ovens and hearthstones would go. William was already up and walking about the place. He waved to her from where a pair of double doors would hang at the front of the building. "'Good morning, Mom. What do you think?' He spread his hands to indicate the edifice. "'I'm impressed, William.' Her voice echoed across the morning stillness. Are you still planning on lighting a solstice fire tonight? There's no hearthstone. He grinned. Well, I have the stone picked out. Bester and I will be moving it today. We'll be ready by sunset. The sun began breaking through the tops of the trees, and a ray speared him in the eyes, so he laughed and had to raise a hand against the dazzling light. Will you be joining us for the vigil, Mum? Oh, I'll be here. He smiled. Good. I better go wake up Bester and get him moving. With a wave, he turned and headed back through the shell of the building. She made it back to her house just as the water was coming to a boil, and she set about having her breakfast, following her morning routine, which included starting some bread dough each morning for baking later in the day. The solstice holiday properly started at sunset, but there was much to do on the shortest day of the year. Traditionally, they'd light a fire at sunset and hold a vigil until dawn. The new year would start at sunrise, and by tradition, everybody would be one year older. It was a time of introspection as the old year came to a close, and a time for new beginnings with the new year just begun. Tanith thought of the inn as beginning rather auspiciously, with the first fire being the solstice vigil, even if she wasn't terribly thrilled about being another year older. Better than the alternative. It was a grumble, but a good-natured one. As she finished kneading the bread dough for the first proof, she thought about the year, especially the past few weeks. She felt, in a certain sense that she'd awakened from a long slumber. Since leaving Roger twenty-odd winters before, she'd been moving from place to place, teacher to teacher, and learning her craft. She'd thought herself, in many ways, fulfilled, and if there were parts of her life lacking, the richness of new knowledge, new people, new places, seemed a fair trade for the things she was missing. She formed the dough into a ball and put it in a wooden bowl with a square of towel over it to protect it from drying out. She placed it near the hearth to be warm enough to rise, but not so near she needed to worry about it cooking or the bowl burning. She pulled another stick out of the wood box and added it to the fire, watched it start to smolder and then slowly catch, begin burning. She thought of the raven. She hadn't shared any vision since looking for Frank in the snow. She wasn't sure how or why or if it were just that she'd not been upset or desperate enough since then. The memory of the nightmare following was enough to make her heart beat a little faster. She looked at her hand wiggling the fingers unconsciously to make sure they were not feathers. She grumbled when she realized what she was doing. Mother, have mercy. 
With the grumble, she reminded herself of the oddness that came with her various prayers since coming to the village, and something inside her quailed. The last one, asking the blessing on the inn, had left her weak and trembling. Still, that was the day Frank had come to fill her woodbox and stayed for dinner and breakfast. For a moment she basked in the inner glow that he gave her, even when he wasn't there. A log in the fireplace snapped and tossed a spark out onto the hearth. She brushed it back into the ashes with the toe of her boot and started thinking about the future. Tomorrow she'd be a year older. The winter would come, and after that the spring. Gertie Pinecrest would also be a year older. Tanith had a pang of anxiety over the idea that the woman she hoped would be her last teacher might cross over before she could get there. And what about Frank? His place was here with the village. The village needed him here, and he'd not be welcome at Mother Pinecrest's. Even if he would want to go with her, he couldn't. She looked around the cozy house and wondered if her plan to find Gertie Pinecrest was really meant to be. She toyed again with the idea of giving up on it. It might be nice to stay with Frank, to help with the village. She sighed and shook herself. You've work to do, old woman. Move. She'd found a supply of small tins with tight-fitting lids in Mother Alterton's shelves. She found several on the shelves with liniments and unguents already in them, most with additions for various inflammations and abrasions. With the coldest part of winter coming, she decided to make pots of lip balm. The children would need it, and she knew she'd need some herself. Over the course of several days, she'd distilled enough mint and lavender oil to use for her balms, which only left mixing the oil and wax to the correct consistency and adding the oils before pouring it in the tins. She floated a small pot in a large kettle of boiling water and put in a block of beeswax for the base. As it melted, she added a measure of almond oil and mixed it in until it took on a smooth consistency. With the pot of balm base made, she poured half of it into a crock and mixed it with the lavender oil quickly before pouring the concoction into half of the small tins. She poured her supply of fresh mint oil into the other pot and repeated the process. As it cooled, the oil kept the wax from becoming hard again and added a bit of flavor and scent. The ointment, when coated on the lips with a fingertip, kept the cold, dry air of winter from drying and cracking. She smiled at her morning's handiwork and transferred the small tins to the mantelboard to cool and set slowly while she punched down her bread and got the loaves ready to bake in the afternoon. The morning raced by and she paused in her work to have a bit of soup for lunch and to stir a pot of beans. Part of the evening's vigil would include a feast and she made a large pot of beans which she'd placed to bake at sunset so they'd have a hot meal at midnight. She knew Sadie and Amber were planting breads as well and Thomas would be spit-roasting various game choices throughout the night. Everybody would bring something to contribute to the feast. While the new inn might be lacking walls, this would still be the first party in it, and the whole town planned to turn out for Solstice Vigil. By mid-afternoon, Tanith looked around and found she was ready for the evening. Her small loaves of bread had baked, and she grimaced at how horrible they looked. Whenever she watched Sadie and Amber sling bread dough around and create the perfect globular bowls, it made her small, misshapen lumps seem somehow inadequate. It tasted good enough. Frank said he liked it and she found the sourdough starter that she used had a mildly piquant flavor. But they just didn't look right to her, and she couldn't figure out what she was doing wrong. She made a mental note to get Sadie to help her after the solstice. Perhaps she'd be able to see the problem. She pulled a larger stick from the wood box and banked the fire around it before kicking off her boots and crawling into her bed. It would be a long night, and Prudence dictated a short nap would not be amiss. As the blankets warmed from her body, she slipped gently over the edge and into sleep. She sat on the top of the spruce and watched the preparations below. She crooned softly to herself, her belly full of rabbit that the man had left unguarded. 
The roof below her covered much of the ground that had once been open, but still left her able to see what occurred in the village. With the short days and long nights and the weather getting colder, she husbanded her strength and stayed close to the tree. There was often food for the taking around these people, and she didn't need to spend a lot of time and effort to find it. She puffed up her feathers and closed her eyes against the afternoon sun. Tanith roused a bit, surprised at the raven dream. It was the first she'd had in weeks. But the day was not close to done, and she had time to sleep. Feeling decadent, she rolled over and pulled the warm blankets up higher on her shoulder, and wondered idly where Frank was before falling back into the delicious darkness. The calling awakened her, and even through her half-closed eyes, she knew the afternoon was waning fast. As she struggled through the grogginess, she realized that the back door of her house stood open, and Frank was lowering himself into the house, bent almost double to avoid the low lintel. She closed her eyes and stretched languorously, wondering if they had time before the festivities started. What a nice surprise. Her voice was low, but the house was small, and she was sure he would be able to hear the invitation in her tone. He straightened and turned, rushing to her in one smooth movement. She blinked, struggling against the nightmare, even as the snarling face of Josh the Kosh peered down at her, and his fist took her back into darkness. Thanks for listening to Ravenwood, a Tanith Fairport adventure. Music is The Hill, composed and produced by Ivan Chu. Find this and other works by Ivan Chu at www.archive.org. You can learn more about the composer and his work by visiting his blog at myrightbrain.wordpress.com. This has been a presentation from Dorandus, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution No Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 U.S. License. For more information on Tanith Fairport and stories from the Lamas Wood, visit www.lamaswood.com.